0: I start with some notable quotations. Christianity did not destroy paganism, it adopted it. The Greek mind, dying, came to a transmigrated life in the theology and liturgy of the church. The Greek language, having reigned for centuries over philosophy, became the vehicle of Christian literature and ritual. Other pagan cultures contributed to the syncretistic results From Egypt came the ideas of a divine trinity and the mystic theosophy that made Neoplatonism and Gnosticism and obscured the Christian creed. Orthodox Christianity was the last great creation of the ancient pagan world. That's a quotation from historian Will Durant in his book Caesar and Christ, the Story of Civilization, written in 1944. Now quotation from Heinz Zandt in his book, The Historical Jesus. After the Church Fathers had finished explaining Jesus, Jesus Christ was now no longer a man of flesh and blood like ourselves, but a heavenly being of supernatural origin in human form. With the help of a metaphysical system taken over from Greek philosophy, Christological dogma came into being and an attempt was made to describe the person of Jesus Christ in the form of the so-called doctrine of the two natures, Jesus Christ, true man, and true God. So men said, but from the beginning they shrank back from the bare historical character of the revelation of God. The Church has been in danger of embracing a non-human Jesus, known as Docetism, From the very beginning, that is, from the very beginning, right until the present day, the Church has been tempted to stress the divinity or deity of Christ so one-sidedly that his manhood threatened to become a mere pretense. In this way, Jesus Christ was made a historical abnormality. The Son of God was endowed with wonderful, indeed miraculous qualities to such an extent that his feet scarcely seemed any longer to touch the ground. What happened to this Christ was no longer the fate of a man, but the fate of a remarkable shadowy fairy tale figure, half man and half God. God offered himself in an earthen vessel, but men down the ages have made it into a golden monstrance. They have woven a golden veil of pious adoration, love, and superstition, and spread it over the rugged contours of God's action in history. We can find iconography not only in Russia, but also in our own sermons and theological textbooks. All this has been done with the laudable intention of heightening the wonder of Revelation. In reality, however, the result has been only to conceal this revelation and to make an approach to it immeasurably more difficult. Is not the dogmatic picture of Christ for many people the greatest hindrance to belief today? Is it not true that so many people come to grief in the Christian faith because they are expected to believe things of Jesus, as historical fact, that they cannot accept honestly. I note that twenty-three million Seventh-day Adventists say in a book on the Trinity, the keystone of our theology is that one plus one plus one is one, and also one is inherently a plural word. That's from the book by Wooden Moon and Reeve called The Trinity. I note this too. Sir Isaac Newton became almost obsessed with the desire to purge Christianity of its mythical doctrines. He became convinced that the irrational dogmas of the Trinity and Incarnation were the result of conspiracy, forgery, and chicanery. The spurious doctrines of the Incarnation and Trinity had been added to the creed, by unscrupulous theologians of the 4th century. Indeed, the Book of Revelation had prophesied the rise of Trinitarianism, what uh, Sir Isaac Newton called this strange religion of the West, the cult of three equal gods, the abomination of desolation. That's a quotation from Karen Armstrong's book, the battle for God. Millard Erikson says, A good Trinitarian must say, They is one and He are three. Trinitarians must say that Jesus is man, but not amen, and that the Son of God had a beginningless beginning. I note that my spell checker rejected beginningless. Even it knows better. Dr. Swindoll, quoting Max Lucado, while the angels watched, Mary changed God's diapers. I say this, it isn't fine to add on gods and go from one to three. One means only always one and never can mean three. Just do the math and you will see that Jesus knew that he could never be a second God from all eternity. On Mark 13, Jesus linked his own return with the fall of Jerusalem. All attempts to deny such a connection in apologetic interests are mere sophistry and merit no refutation. That's from the book by Schenkel, Das Charakterbild Jesu ein biblischer Versuch, written in 1864. Let's consider why we do Bible study. The dynamic words of Holy Scripture are designed to impart life to us. But this is only possible when they are understood by us readers. Paul emphasized that the only ideal worth achieving is to cultivate what he called a love for the truth so that we can be saved. Certainly not as an optional extra. And loving truth means refusing to believe what is not true and standing up for this. Believing falsehood debilitates and dilutes the energy of the spirit of the truth, which is designed to animate and invigorate us. Truth is life-imparting, and falsehoods undermine our very being. Falsehood is a poison to our system, and not better than adding cyanide to our coffee or donuts. Believing what is untrue is to be rejected with the maximum conscientious effort. The anti-Christian threat is that we would not love the truth, but believe what is not true, and thus love unrighteousness. Paul said this in Second Thessalonians 2, that believing the truth is contrasted with believing what is false and being unrighteous. As Micah, speaking for God, said, Do not my words do good? Micah, chapter 2, verse 7. In Jeremiah 6, verse 10, we read, To whom am I to give word? Witnessing so that they may take note. See, their ears are stopped, and they are not able to give attention. Look, the word of the Lord has been a cause of shame to them. And they have no delight in it. God's story ends brilliantly. And one day all the punishment and tribulation will be over for good. And I will never again make you a a reproach among the nations. Joel 2 verse 19. Micah 4 verse 3. And never again will they train for war. Nahum chapter 1 verse 15. Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. But we're not there yet, and we need to be fully informed of the story which will unfold as God deals with Israel and the world, before Christ comes back. The story is centered on Jerusalem, where eventually, after all the extreme distress, the kingdom of God will have its governmental center. Let me begin by putting before you the Good Translator's Note in the NET Bible to Revelation, the words of Jesus, in Revelation 11, verse 2. The holy city appears to be a reference To Jerusalem see also Luke 21 verse 24 now this in view of the plethora of material written on the kingdom of God in the New Testament it is a marvel that scholars have not bestowed proportionate attention on the same topic as set forth in Daniel which is the Old Testament source of Christ's teaching on the matter and therefore, it should, of course, be Christ's saving gospel. One classic treatment is found in Lagrange, Le Judaïsme avant Jésus Christ, written in 1931. That's a quotation from Desmond Ford's Abomination of Desolation in Prophecy, written in 1939. Now this, anyone who's tried to read John's Revelation can sympathize with George Bernard Shaw's remark that it is a curious record of the visions of a drug addict, cited in Robert Fuller, The Naming of the Antichrist, written in 1995. Underlying the book of Revelation is an undercurrent of vindictiveness and morbidity. John's references to seven messages, seven seals, seven trumpets and seven bowls and seven unnumbered visions merged together to lead the reader into hopeless confusion. That's all the statement really gets me going. So much then, say these authors, for the revelation belonging to Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, And he made it known by sending it via his angel to his servant John. So much for the very words of Jesus, which many scholars approach in various oblique and confusing ways. They exhaust themselves with theories of authorship, anything to remove the authority of Jesus from the apocalypse. How few scholars today are impressed with the uncompromising warnings of Jesus. Jesus said this in the book of Revelation, I testify to anyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone will take away from the words which are written in this prophecy, God will take from him his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Revelation 21, verses 18 and 29. Revelation has been the brunt of every mad idea conceivable. For example, 666 must be Ronald, with six letters, Wilson, six letters, and Reagan, six letters, who was shot and yet survived. By contrast, a piece of plain truth, in an obvious allusion to the three and a half years mentioned by Daniel, john tells us that the beast is to function for 42 months jesus fared no better from hostile critics of his so-called apocalyptic discourse in the gospels that apocalyptic discourse speaks of the sudden catastrophic intervention of god in the affairs of the earth to right all wrongs desmond ford says the apocalypse Is the direct revelation of divine truth hitherto unknown or of future events or conditions not capable of merely human prediction, disclosed by God to some one of his favored servants? The enemies of truth, who are always and increasingly present, I remember the quotation, evil men, as Paul said, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, did not give up opposing Jesus. Here's a quotation from Ford. Kolani labored to eradicate all evidences of messianism and eschatology from the teaching of Christ. The disciples, already indoctrinated with Jewish eschatology, were the real culprits. Kolani's theory offered a welcome option for those embarrassed by the apocalyptic eschatology of Mark chapter 13. My own cousin J.A.T. Robinson said this, Mark 13 is a secondary compilation reflecting the expectation of the early church. Glasson said this about Mark 13, this picture of a mistaken fanatic bringing the message that millions now living will never die. C.H. Weiser, cited by Ford, said that Mark 13 is an utterance constructed out of the most narrow and superstitious belief in the symbolic sayings of a fantastic book, Daniel, which ignorance or deceit attributed to a renowned old prophet and out of the most extravagant, half-insane imagination. Any specifically Christian element in Mark 13, said another, is lacking in the discourse. The whole derives from Daniel. That's a quotation from Horscher, cited by Ford. And Luther said, Christ is not taught in the book of Revelation. Augustine, hailed by many as the greatest spiritual giant since Paul, became an outspoken critic of apocalyptic thought, influenced by an African scholar, Ticonius, who urged, and I quote, a spiritualized reading of Revelation by which the Antichrist must be understood to mean the struggle of good versus evil in every age. This led to an anti millenarian reading of Revelation. Augustine said that whatever is contrary to the word of Christ is Antichrist. But Pope Urban justified sending the Crusaders on a bloody conquest of Palestine by announcing that it is the will of God that through the labors of the Crusaders, Christianity will again flourish at Jerusalem. In these last times so that when Antichrist begins his reign there as he must he will find enough Christians to fight. There are 88 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation and Jesus obviously loved this prophet Daniel and based his understanding of the gospel of the kingdom and of end time events on it and on all the prophets. The Gospels take into account the Old Testament program of the end. First of all, according to the prophets, a hostile army is to capture and devastate Jerusalem. Half of the inhabitants will be carried away into captivity, and yet it will continue to be a Jewish city. Zechariah 14 verse 2 The eschatological discourse draws from the Old Testament descriptions of invasions of the Holy Land by Assyria, Babylon, and Syria. The invasions had come because of transgression. That's to say, Israel's own defection from Yahweh, Israel's own abominations, caused the influx of the abominations of the heathen. This is the import of Jeremiah chapter 7, Ezekiel chapters 5 to 7, Daniel 8 and 9, as well as Mark 13. In Christ's day, there already existed the understanding that a great and desolating war would herald the coming of the kingdom and it would be directed against Jerusalem and its temple. And it is this concept which Christ adopts. The word understand occurs 27 times in Daniel, and it is crucial to Daniel 8. Jesus echoes this when he said, Understand what I mean by abomination of desolation. To Daniel the angel said, Understand, Son of Man, addressing Daniel here, that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Daniel 8, verses 17 and 19. I'm going to tell you what will take place at the final time of indignation because it pertains to the appointed time of the end. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. The abomination of desolation is the terrifying harbinger of the end, so said Desmond Ford. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 14 and 15. Then the end will come. When you therefore see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, then flee, and flee with the utmost urgency. As believers commissioned to preach the gospel, We need to have the in-depth story on the Jesus who, as did Paul, announced the future and stated, I've told you this in advance, whether it be our future or that of our children. Paul was for only a brief time in Thessalonica founding the church. At that time, he gave them essential information on the Antichrist man of sin and said don't you remember that while I was with you I used often to be telling you these things prophecy about end time events leading to the parousia Jesus future arrival is not an optional extra but the very fiber of good gospel of the kingdom understanding essential invigorating equipment for all believers We are given a mass of material to instruct us in the proper vision of the end time, the order of events, and the transition at the parousia from this evil age to the great age to come of the kingdom of God on earth. Why is the Olivet discourse, which implies a mass of material from Daniel and the other prophets, less important than, say, the Sermon on the Mount. What about the 22 chapters of Jesus' words in Revelation? Is it not all equally energizing truth? As Desmond Ford observed, it should be recognized that Christ's attitude to the Old Testament presupposes his acceptance of the prophetic and apocalyptic concepts reflected there. There's nothing in Mark 13, Matthew 24 and Luke 21, that would seem foreign to one who knew the Old Testament well. as from Desmond Ford's book, Abomination of Desolation in Prophecy. But do we know this material well? The Old Testament and Jewish understanding of the Holy Spirit is implicitly in the promise of Mark 13, verse 11. The Spirit is given to inspire especially marvellous utterances and is given to special men, the martyrs, in times of special need, in court proceedings. The Book of Acts and the Letters of Paul especially emphasize that the Holy Spirit is given to every member of the Church and that the Spirit initiates those actions and attitudes also which do not appear miraculous in any way. 1 Corinthians 12, 1-3 Observe that among the gifts of the Spirit are found power to help and to lead others, generosity and kindness. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, Romans 12, verse 8. The parallel verse in Luke 21, verse 15, compare with that Luke 12, verse 12, speaks of the exalted Jesus instead of the Spirit. Luke equates the two in other passages also. No other than Jesus addressed the church in the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 13 verse 14 marks the beginning of something quite extraordinary. In Daniel 9 verse 27, We read that the awful horror, the abomination of desolation, designates the pagan altar which was erected at that time on the altar of burnt offerings in the temple courtyard. The discussion by Jesus, which follows, clearly indicates that here in Mark 13, 14, the term abomination of desolation refers to a person linking easily to the man of sin, in Paul's writings. Undoubtedly, the phrase where he ought not to refers to the temple, since the entire passage presupposes a Jewish situation. That's from the book by Edward Schweitzer on the Gospel of Mark. This very limited local emergency is looked on here as the beginning of the crucial and unparalleled tribulation of the end time. That's to say, the great tribulation in a short time, which cannot be defined more precisely. But we note that Matthew has immediately after, in chapter 24, verse 29, after that, Immediately after that time of trouble, there will be distinct, visible, cosmic signs, and then Jesus will arrive. In Second Thessalonians 2, we have a piece of so-called Jewish prophecy. Paul makes this prophecy of the man of sin in the temple the one key sign parallel to Jesus' abomination of desolation. Of the impending end of the age. The appearance of the man of sin, who has his own counterfeit parousia, backed by miracle, is the heart of pre kingdom eschatology, negated and neutralized, alas, by the false system of Hal Lindsay, which promises a lift off to heaven for true believers. Before the man of sin arrives, Her Lindsay would tell us that we believers will view the end-time events from the comfort of spectators in heaven. The rationale for a future temple would be this. The Jews have not accepted their Messiah, and the Christians have. So our sins are paid for and blotted out, paid in full. But the Jews need a temple desperately, the spot where Abraham was willing to offer his son to provide atonement for sin. The Antichrist ingratiates himself with them and allows them to have a temple. In the middle of the final heptad, or period of seven years, it all goes wrong. To quote from the line, From les Miserables. Now note this, it is Christianity which has made it impossible for Jews to accept God as the triune God, and thus they are deprived of the true God and true Jesus offered by Scripture. The Church has therefore kept Jews away from atonement in Christ. Thus, naturally, they look to the wailing wall and a rebuilt temple to appease their consciences. Zechariah 12 verse 3 says in the Septuagint, It will come to pass in that day that I will make Jerusalem a stone of trampling by all the nations. Everyone who tramples on it will utterly mock at it and all the nations will be gathered against it. We're still. Two-thirds of Israel will be eliminated, and one-third of the city exiled. That's in Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9, and Zechariah 14, verses 1 and 2. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. Houses plundered, women ravished, and half of the city exiled, and the other half not cut off. To Israel, Isaiah said, Then hail will sweep away our refuge of lies, your covenant of death will be cancelled, and your pact with Sheol will not stand when the overwhelming scourge passes through and you become its trampling place. Isaiah 28 verse 18 says, Your covenant with death will be cancelled and your pact with shale will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you will be a trampling place. Compare with that Daniel 8 verse 13. The Hebrew version of Zechariah 12 verse three is easier on Israel and harder on the attacking nations. A tiny variation, one difference of a consonant, gives us the fuller and grimmer picture reported in the Septuagint version of Zechariah 12 verse three. Instead of the nations finding Jerusalem, a burdensome stone, The verb is amas, to burden. Israel, in other words, will be trampled, trodden on, stone. The verb was read as ramas, to trample. This reading is reflected in Jesus in Luke 21, verse 24, and again in Revelation 11, verse 2. You can hear the awful trampling of the army boots, ramas. Both Jesus and Paul Based on Zechariah 12, verse 3 in the Septuagint and Daniel chapter 7, 8, 9, 11, and 12. Also Romans 9, verse 27 and 28, 11, verses 25 to 28. These passages present us with a coming very bad time for Israel. The appearance of the abomination of desolation, the surrounding and trampling of Jerusalem, Luke 24, verse 21. The man of sin, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, in the temple, are the key, key signs of the impending countdown to the second coming. Jesus repeats all this in Revelation 11, verses 1 to 2. There's a temple building in which persons worship God. The outer court is thrown out recalling the cast-out of Daniel 8, verse 11, see the excellent remarks of Professor Baucom in his Climax of Prophecy, pages 268 to 273. Daniel 8 has been regularly preterized, that's to say, put into the past to avoid the future reference. People were told that it was all over with Antiochus Epiphanes, that's to say, the unwanted future has been put behind us, so to speak, and thus negated and lost from view. And so Desmond Ford rightly says, it does not appear correct to say that Luke in chapter 21 or elsewhere anticipates the future in a way different from Mark. Luke's times of the Gentiles are identical with the great tribulation of Mark 13, and this is an allusion to Daniel 8, verse 13. In Luke 21, Jerusalem's fall is still viewed eschatologically. The difficulties in the way of dividing up Mark 13 are grave and insurmountable. It ignores the coupling together of the two parts in the discourse as belonging to one great event. Matthew 24, verse 29 says that they, the great tribulation and second coming, will follow each other immediately. Mark says that they belong to the same general period. And the wrong method attempts to explain away the obvious notes of time. In Luke 21, the fate of the holy city is considered to be a future eschatological event. The Antichrist, Paul says, recalling Daniel 11 verse 36 and following, poses eventually as God or a God and then turns on the Jews and others as a beast. And according to Jesus and Daniel sets up a disgusting horror or abomination of desolation in the temple. This triggers the unprecedented time of Great Tribulation. All this brings Daniel chapter 7, 8, 9, 11, and 12 into focus as expounded and expanded by Jesus in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, and by Revelation. This is a mass Of biblical material. This is also Jewish history in advance, but it provides the essential sign for Christians that the final three and a half years is about to kick in. This Jewish temple prophecy in 2 Thessalonians 2 also enables Paul to teach that only after the appearance of the man of sin, the Antichrist, in the temple, Can Jesus come back to raise the dead and catch up the living faithful to meet him and escort him as the king arriving to rule? Not until then and not before then. The second coming of Jesus is not a drive-through event. He's coming back. He has a one-way ticket. Paul knows that the ultimate restoration of a remnant Of the now blinded natural ethnic Israel is a key to prophecy. Abrahamic people have from the beginning always rightly insisted on a future restoration of a remnant of now blinded disobedient Israel, what Paul calls the Israel of the flesh in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 18 as in the King James Version. As distinct from the Israel of the Spirit, otherwise known as the Israel of God in Galatians six sixteen, and known also as the true circumcision, Philippians three verse three, Galatians six sixteen, and of course Galatians three verse twenty-nine. Abraham's seed, members of the New Covenant, Commonwealth of Israel are the same group of people. The return of natural Israel to nationhood in 1948 was not the restoration described in the Bible, which always implied a converted Israel, and we certainly don't see that now in Israel, and have not since 1948, but the 1948 event certainly makes the prophecies possible in a new way, as will also the building of a temple. The Hal Lindsay scheme, a novelty since 1830, should be dropped as offering a false escape. Jesus makes the abomination of desolation the sign, otherwise called by Jesus, the surrounding of Jerusalem by armies, in Luke 21, verse 24, which signals what Jesus calls the trampling down of Jerusalem. Luke 21, verse 24, until the times of Gentile domination are finally and thankfully brought to a close. As Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27 predicts, unpacking, of course, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22, Isaiah 28, verse 22, and Romans 9, verse 27. All of this is found also in Zechariah 12, verse 3, the Septuagint. Isaiah 63 gives a tribulation time prayer for those suffering in the time of temple trouble and trampling and invasion. So also, Psalm 79, Isaiah 28 speaks of a covenant of lies and a trampling of Israel. See Isaiah 28, verse 18. The Olivet Discourse is Jesus' extended exegesis of the great unparalleled tribulation of Matthew 24, verse 21, referring, of course, to Daniel 12, verse 1 connected with the time of the death of the final king of the north. Immediately following that great tribulation, as Jesus says in Matthew 24, 29, the cosmic signs introduce the one single great visible parousia of the Messiah. The immediately after of Matthew 24, 29, of course, rules out A.D. 70, unless one imagines a Great Tribulation twice the length of the millennium. Jesus blocked that amazing idea by describing the Great Tribulation as days in which it will be impossibly difficult for pregnant women and nursing mothers. For that, see Mark chapter 13, verses 17 and 19. What I am saying here is nothing new. It is classical premillennialism found in the second century pre mill writers. And Joyce Baldwin, Dean of Women at Trinity College Bristol, in her commentary on Daniel in the Tyndale Commentary series, has to remind us of what is really obvious. She says to confine the meaning of Daniel's prophecy to the second century BC, is to close one's eyes to the witness of Jesus and of the New Testament writers in general that it also had and will have a future significance she notes too the obvious references of Daniel to the Assyrian but as in the case of the cruel Assyrian invader Daniel 10 verse 23 An end has been decreed for the wicked leader of Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. Joyce Baldwin refers to the final heptad, period of seven years, of Daniel 9, and later says, In the gospel, Jesus makes reference to the 70 weeks only in terms of the abomination of desolation. Matthew 24, verse 15, Mark 13, verse 14, the desolating sacrilege, as translated by the RSV. For Jesus, the significance of the phrase abomination of desolation was not exhausted by its applicability to Antiochus' Epiphanes. The book of Revelation takes up the symbolism of the half of the week, Of Daniel 9, expressed in Revelation 11 verse 2, as the 42 months during which the holy city is to be trampled underfoot. And in Revelation 13 verse 5, the beast has authority for the same period. If Revelation was written after AD 70, and I think it was, it makes a further application of our passage to an end time yet to be. Thus, the New Testament positively encourages the view that while there are interim events which bear out the truth of the imagery, it points to a culmination at the end time. Although Joyce Baldwin wrongly uses the phrase end of history when she really should say the end of the present evil age. Baldwin then warns, she says, with regard to prophecy as foretelling, the church has lost its nerve. An earthbound rationalistic humanism has so invaded Christian thinking as to tinge with faint ridicule all claims to see in the Bible anything more than the vaguest references to future events. Compare with this Greg Dibel's good statement in his book, They Never Told Me This in Church. These prophecy issues are basic to Christian discipleship. That's to say, learning to be like the master rabbi whom we claim to follow. From the pulpit commentary in the early 1900s, I read this. The man of sin sitting in the temple of God... Of that, the pulpit commentary says the popes have never claimed to be God. The temple of God cannot be the Vatican, nor the Christian church, which is an ideal building. Nor can Rome be considered the center of the Christian church. This terrible person, the man of sin, sits down in God's place. For the temple is God's dwelling in some actual temple and appropriates it for his own use. Nothing is more remarkable than the growth of error in the patristic age. False opinions held by pious fathers in one age were held by errorists in the next age to the exclusion of the truth. There have been precursors to the man of sin, such as Caligula in AD 40, But the apostasy is still to come. The man of sin is still in the future. The mystery of iniquity is working even now. The man of sin is a person, a man of mighty intellect and giant strength of will, who will take advantage of a general development of unbelief and lawlessness and gain for a time widespread sovereignty he will sit in the temple of god reviving the madness of antiochus epiphanes and caligula such a man the world has not yet seen he is the last and worst product of the apostasy the appearance of the man of sin is the sign of the approaching advent of christ the penalty of rejecting the love of the truth, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10, is the incapacity to distinguish the truth from error. God punishes men in this condition by sending them a working of error that they would believe falsehood. This is an awful fate. Those who do not love the truth will not have it. Liars become incapable of knowing the truth. The habit of indifference to truth so grows upon some people that the whole idea of truth becomes meaningless and obscure to them. Is this not a veritable destruction, the spiritual eye blinded and burned out by the fires of falsehood and unrighteousness? The highest intellectual faculty that of grasping truth, killed by corruption and falsehood. God save us all from this hideous doom. That's from the pulpit commentary on Second Thessalonians. I note that for an excellent read on this neglected element of the gospel, please see Gerard Knoll in his book A Brief Inquiry into the Prospects of the Church of Christ, in connection with the Second Advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, written in 1828. Also, the Abrahamic book, free at our site, focusonthekingdom.org, called The Gospel of the Kingdom by Wiley Jones. The destiny of the faithful of all the ages, we all know, involves immortalization at the parousia in the first resurrection or the advanced resurrection, the ex-anastasis of Philippians 3.11. There will be a surviving mortal population in the millennium, without which all the many promises of co-rulership with Jesus over the nations, in Revelation 2, verse 26 and so on, that's to say being promoted to be governor of five or ten cities, or being put in charge of many things, all of these would be denied and negated if there were no millennium to come. Loss of such truth inevitably debilitates believers who are deprived of the energizing power of a massive truth, that they are now royalty in training. God's choice people being groomed to be the kingdom of God, not just be vaguely in it. This life is training for reigning and schooling for ruling. Jesus did not say, well done faithful servant, take part in five or ten cities. He said, be governor over five or ten cities. There's a very great difference don't you know that the saints are going to manage the world? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, For Paul, this was an elementary truth of the gospel and was equivalent in the same passage, 1 Corinthians 6, as inheriting the kingdom of God. I read in Isaiah chapter 32, verse 1, Behold, a king will reign in justice, along with princes. The prophets and the Psalms are rich with the prospect of co-reigning with Jesus, and Daniel, of course, is saturated with this promise, especially 7, verse 27, where all nations, we read, are to obey the saints, whose time to take charge of the kingdom will come in Revelation 7, verse 22, All this is part of the destiny of the Son of Man, the human being, who is seen doing what Adam failed to do, that's to say, organize and supervise an empire that will really work with the laws of righteousness and justice, which will be enforceable and indeed enforced. Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 and following presents this idyllic kingdom where mortals living a mere hundred years will be considered failures along with a mass of material in the Hebrew Bible, not least the marvelous time coming in Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4 when the nations will learn to beat their tanks into tractors, when the kingdom and dominion returns to Jerusalem Micah 4, verse 18, and the kingdom of the Lord, formerly in the hands of the family of David, 2 Chronicles 13, 8, reappears in the hands of Jesus Messiah and his international faithful followers. As Obadiah, verse 21, reads, the kingdom is going to be restored as we read in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 26. Jesus celebrated this truth about the reversal of the failure of Adam to rule the world, and he describes it as the kingdom covenant recalled at the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, As my Father has covenanted to give me a kingdom, so I covenant with you. To give you the right to rule and you will sit on 12 thrones to administer the regathered tribes of israel luke 22 verses 28 to 30. so we have the abrahamic covenant the davidic covenant and the jesuanic covenant all pointing to kingdom and royalty on earth the reversal of the adam failure No wonder Jesus begins by commanding us all in Mark 1, verses 1 and 14 and 15, repent and believe the gospel about the kingdom, which is repent and stop not believing in your destiny, which is to rule with Jesus in the coming kingdom. In Mark 4, verse 11, Jesus warned, that repentance is impossible without belief in the kingdom of God. He said this, if they did believe in the kingdom, they could repent and be forgiven. A staggering statement, that belief in the gospel of the kingdom is the essential prerequisite and basis for repentance and forgiveness. If we don't grasp and believe, in the kingdom, future, in Christ, to be prepared for urgently now? How can it be said that we have repented of our failure in Adam? Effective evangelism requires some prolonged intensive training on how to communicate the great truth acceptable to a billion Muslims and millions of Jews but vigorously resisted by so-called orthodox churches, that God is a single divine person, so described thousands and thousands of times by singular personal pronouns. This is a huge issue, teaching and persuading about who God and Jesus are. There's a good sample from the Internet. This person could be contacted and given books to encourage them further. This is the question which needs to be engaged. How can we get Megyn Kelly and Sean Hannity to engage the conversation about who the true God is? Could anything be more interesting or relevant? Did Jesus believe in the Trinity since he was a Jew? No. In one discussion Jesus had with his enemies, they said to him, We aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. That's in John 8, verse 41. So to the Jews, the father, a single person, was their God. Jesus did not dispute that. In fact, he agreed with them, saying, If God were your father, you would love me, because I've come to you from God. I'm not here on my own. But he sent... Or commissioned me." So both Jesus and the Jews were in agreement that the Father, not a Trinity, was God. At John 20 verse 17, Jesus told Mary, I'm ascending to my Father and my God. Again this shows that only one person, the Father, is God. According to the Trinity doctrine, We worship one God in Trinity. Did Jesus ever say that the Son and Holy Spirit were to be worshipped along with the Father? Never. At John 4, verse 23, he said, But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So, instead of worshipping a three-person deity, Jesus instructed his followers to worship only the Father, who he later called the only true God, in John seventeen three. Jesus made this the key to life in the coming age, John 17, verse 3. The Trinity doctrine says, in part, In this trinity, none is greater or less than another. Jesus proved this to be a lie when he said, the Father is greater than I am. John 14, verse 28. So, in answer to your question, neither Jesus nor the Jews believed in the trinity. I've been in discussion with James Dunn and his student, James McGrath, and also with the famous Bishop Tom Wright, who seems intent on maintaining his Church of England trinity as a reformulated Shema. Recently, I said, My question to you, Dr. McGrath, is simply this. You and Dr. Dunn have argued cogently that Bishop Wright's attempt to, as he said, reformulate the Shema in First Corinthians 8, 4-6, does not work. Paul constantly defines Jesus as the Lord Messiah. Psalm 110 verse 1 being the pervasive background for this identification. The Lord Messiah is not the same person as the Lord God. In 1 Corinthians 8 verses 4 to 6, Jesus is as always the Lord Messiah. God is a single someone, and Jesus is someone else. They cannot possibly both be God. It seems desperate to plead with Bishop Wright that Paul has altered the unitary monotheistic creed of Jesus, and you agree that Paul has not done this. So then, why don't we all return to the Jewish creed of the Jew Jesus? After all, Protestants claim to go by the Bible. What could be a more obvious and unifying way of doing this than reinstating the creed of our founder, Jesus? At present, Jesus is being relegated to pre-Christian, and his creed, which he describes as the most important command of all, has been superseded by what became an obviously not Unitary, monotheistic creed. There are vast issues at stake here. We're all grateful for your plain opposition to Tom Wright, Malcolm and Hurtado, and their reformulation of the Shema, in First Corinthians 8, verses four to six. I hope I'm clear here: the voice of Jesus in Mark 12, verse 29, ought to be heard. Why not? Is Christianity to remain the only world religion which begins by discarding its own founder's creed? Would this not be in the highest degree embarrassing and shattering when we are all judged by Jesus? Acts 17, verse 31. Bishop Bright, in correspondence, said, But what we do find in Scripture as is now increasingly realized by scholars in many traditions, is the Jesus and Spirit reshaping of first century Jewish monotheism in such a way that we are forced to say that if the doctrine of the Trinity didn't exist, we would have to invent it. This goes back at least to Galatians 4, verses 1 to 11. As I say, it's all there in chapter 9 of my book, and in the work of scholars like Hurtado and Baucom. The later official doctrine re-expresses in different and philosophically oriented terms what the very first Christians were saying in deeply Jewish and scripture-based terms. As I've said, until you engage with the relevant texts and arguments, there's no point taking this further. I suggest this for a bumper sticker. Jesus was not a Trinitarian. Why are you?